Hey, this is Keith. I'm the pastor of Blaze Church. Welcome to our podcast. I know today's message is going to inspire you, encourage you, and lead you to know God more. If you want to connect with us, visit us online at blazechurch.org. Enjoy today's message. We're starting off this new year with a series called How to Study the Bible. How to study the Bible. How many would like to better understand the answer to that question, how do I study the Bible? All of us. And so whether you are brand new to Jesus or you have been a Christian for some time, we can all grow in our understanding of how do we study what we call the Bible. Now, to begin, I want to read a verse from the Bible that is written by a man named Paul to a man named Timothy. And in his writing, he gives us sort of what the Bible does in our lives in one verse. I want to show it to you and then explain some things while it's on the screen. So here's where we read from 2 Timothy. Timothy is a book in the New Testament. We're going to learn all about that today. But here's what we read. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, what I want you and I to understand is when Paul writes to Timothy sometime in the first century AD, all scripture at that point is what we would call the Old Testament. So think of that. Paul says, even the books that confuse us today, (laughs) Paul says to Timothy, it's actually God-breathed, which is why we believe We're going to talk about this. God's word is inspired by God. It's God breathed out. And here's what God's word does in our lives. It teaches us how many need to be taught sometimes. Come on. How many know we've got to be rebuked sometimes. Okay, I'm not on the right path. I got to get back on the path. It corrects us and trains us. Watch this. The thought continues in the next verse. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if you are a follower of Jesus today, another one of your titles is a servant of God. You and I want to be thoroughly equipped for that good work. God's word matters. We've got to learn how to study the Bible. Now, if you don't know Jesus today, and maybe you're starting off the year saying, you know what, it's a new year and I want to start going to church. Can I tell you, we're so thankful you're here this morning. In fact, we've been waiting for you. We've been praying for you and preparing for you to come today. And I want to show you, start the new year, not just in church, start the new year in God's word, because the Bible is the best way to get to know God, reading the Bible. But the problem is so many of us struggle with reading the Bible. So I thought, why is it that we struggle? And there's a few reasons. One, maybe like me at times, I've just thought, Like, is this important for my life? After all, there's so many things we could read. The self-help book section is large, isn't it? I could help myself with some other reading. I could help myself with some things. So I don't get why this book that seems to be a little dated and a little like, I don't understand it. And is it even for me? Why would I want to read this? This doesn't seem to be too important. Maybe it's not an importance issue. It's an understanding issue or a confusion issue. Anyone ever been confused by something they read in the Bible? All of us. 
And maybe you even started off with a good aspiration, a good goal, and you said, this is the year I'm going to read through the Bible. And so you thought, what better place to start than the beginning? And so you opened up and you started reading in Genesis, and it was fun. There's naked people and a talking snake, and you're like, oh, I could get into this. And Abraham's there, and then Joseph's there, and he gets beat up, and then he becomes a king, and then you get to Exodus, and Moses is doing all these crazy things, and there's flies and frogs and darkness, and the waters part, and the Ten Commandments. Then you get to Leviticus, and it gets confusing because you've cut your sideburns, and you love double bacon cheeseburgers, but this tells you not to love double bacon cheeseburgers. And you conclude, this must not be the book for me. And you close it because it's confusing. But I really think if we could boil it down to one big why we don't read the Bible is simply because I don't know how. It's not like any other book. You pick up a book and you say, okay, I'm reading fiction. I can put my mind in a place to know I'm reading a story. I'm reading history. I can put my mind to put me in a place of reading history. I'm reading poetry. I'm reading something that tells me how to live. I'm reading wisdom. But I pick up the Bible and I don't know because it feels like all of that's here. So do I apply this as application or is this telling me of someone else? Is this? And we don't know how. So what we're going to do this week and next week, in two weeks, the best we can, is discover how to study the Bible. Now, here's what I need you to do. I need you to come to church today. Everybody said, I did it. Okay, good job. You're halfway there. Now, I need you to come back next week. You've got to do it or join us online next week because This is going to be like watching half a movie today with a cliffhanger because we're not going to get into all the very practical actually how today. Next week, we're going to talk about translations to choose. Which one do I pick? Genre. How do I apply it? How do I study a verse? Do I read a chapter? What are verse numbers all about? All of that's going to be next week. Today, I want to motivate you because the why matters a lot more than the what in our lives. So you and I have to know why should I want to read the Bible? That's what today's all about. I pray that you leave this service today saying, oh my goodness, I may not know how, but I really want to. I really want to. So I want to show you by answering three questions why reading the Bible should matter to you. Here's the three questions. I encourage you to write this down. What is the Bible? What is the Bible all about and what difference does the Bible make? Write those down. We're going to answer them. What is the Bible? When we say the Bible, what do we mean? What is it all about? Is there one, what, what, am, I, what am I doing here reading this? Is there something different between Exodus and Mark? Like, what is this? And what difference does it make in my life? That's application. And we'll get to the how questions next week. So let's start with what is the Bible. When we say, this is my Bible, I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be boldly taught the word of God. My mind is alert. Nobody, nobody knows Joel Osteen. Are you kidding me? Thank you. My goodness. Okay. Here we go in Jesus' name. What do we mean when we say, this is my Bible? Well, we're talking about a collection of writings, The first thing to understand is this. The Bible is broken up into two big parts. We call them testaments. 
the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Write that down. And it's not broken up evenly. So if you were to take your Bible and open it up to the middle, just right in the middle, you'll probably see Psalms because of how large that piece of writing is. But in two parts, not evenly distributed, the first part, the Old Testament has 39 books and the New Testament has 27 books. Now, what are they about? The Old Testament primarily deals with one family, one people group, the Jewish people. Because we see in Genesis that God makes a promise or a covenant, a testament with a man named Abraham and says, through you, all the world will be blessed. The Old Testament, those first 39 books in your Bible primarily deal with God's blessing coming to and through the Jewish people, which is why you'll get books of history, books about kings, Jewish prophets, the law, the Torah, the Psalms, the writings, and all of that in a Jewish mindset. We're going to talk about that next week, Jewish literature. But we get glimpses throughout the Old Testament that it's not just about one people group because others, non-Jewish people, are brought into the promise and experience the blessing as well. Then we get to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there is repeated prophecies, promises that one will come called the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And the New Testament is about his coming. Do you know what his name is? Go ahead and say it. Jesus. Okay, that's him. So he comes and he's born of a virgin, lives a sinless life, dies a sinner's death, rises from the dead, ascends to heaven. People see this and then people start believing in him and living out his ways. They're called Christians. And the New Testament tells us all about how Christ has fulfilled the first part and now we get to live new. That's the big picture of the old and new part of the Bible. Now, what makes up the two Testaments? 66 books. There are 66 books that make that up. 39 in the old, 27 in the new. Now, we say books, but our minds think of books differently than what's actually in the Bible. So understand there's different genres of writing there. There's poetry, there's history, there's prophecy to speak of things to come or that have come. There's encouragement, there's letters, there, there's, there's all different genres that are there, but we call them books, 66 different pieces of writing. This is interesting, written by approximately 40 different authors. How amazing that the Bible you hold wasn't written by one person. I love that. Not one person got some special revelation and started writing things. No, this is written by different authors and these authors are very different. There's a king, there's a shepherd, there's a tax collector, there's a doctor, there's a rabbi. I mean, it's all, the people that God uses is so varied. And that's approximate, debate over the number. But here's what I want you to understand what we read first. While there are different authors, we believe God inspired it and men held the pen. That is the only way that you can have this consistency, this single story woven throughout is that it is in fact God breathed. All scripture, God inspired. Here's a cool fact. Your Bible contains nearly 1500 years of writing. So what we read about spans human history for nearly 1500 years 
in the first century AD, going back to 1400 BC, the stories of Abraham. All of that in there. Watch this. There's three different languages that your Bible's originally written in. Hear this. It wasn't first written in English or Spanish. No, it was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Those were the three primary languages. And then over time, we've translated it. We'll talk about that next week into language. All of that, if there's just one thing that you need to know when you open your Bible, is that it's telling one story. And if you can, if you can understand that, I'm telling you, you're well, well on your way to understanding how to read the Bible. That if you say, okay, there's one story being told, what is it? We're going to get there. Remember, it's the second question. What's it all about? But first, when you say the Bible, someone says, did you read your Bible today? You should say, oh, you mean the two Testaments, 66 books written by 40 authors over 1500 years in three different languages that tells one story? Why, yes, yes, I did. I did the verse of the day. But you should understand what we mean. We say, did you read the Bible? That's cover to cover what it is. And there's different types of Bibles. We'll talk about that. The question we need to answer next is very important. It's this, how can we trust the Bible? And what I mean by how can we trust the Bible, I'm not specifically talking about what it says. I'm asking, can I trust that the Bible I hold today is in fact the writings of the original authors? You ever thought about that? I mean, if you're building your life on Jesus and this, you probably should want to know, is this actually it? Like, what if in, I don't know, 430, they changed something? What, what if in, in 2000, remember Y2K? Crazy stuff happened. Right? What if during that time, like, oh, all stuff changed? I don't know if this is original, if this is real. How can I trust that what I hold today, what's on Version Bible app, the Bibles we have today are, in fact, the writings of the apostles, the prophets, the fishermen, the tax collector, all that. Well, it comes down to one word. I want you to write it down. It's this word, original manuscripts. Two words, one thought. Original manuscript. And what an original manuscript is, when historians and archaeologists, way smarter people than me, I'll give you that, when they're dating writings and they're looking at human history, they're looking for what's called original manuscripts. These are documents started on stone tablets, moved to papyrus and scrolls. They're looking for fragments of these original documents that have been passed down and dating them as closely to the event that they're written about as possible and asking, how many copies do we have? Let's verify this. I mean, if we're talking about something that happened in 1300 BC, 3,300 years ago, roughly, I want to know how many copies we've got of that. And, and is it real? They're looking for original manuscripts. So you may be familiar, in 1946, there was a discovery made of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Middle East. And do you know what that discovery did? It validated the Old Testament in the biggest way possible. They got access to these original manuscripts full prophet Isaiah. I mean, pieced it all together to show what you and I have today is actually what we call the Old Testament. When it comes to the New Testament, 
There are more than 5,700 Greek manuscripts that contain all or part of the New Testament. Now, let me give you that number in comparison to some other works that are used, especially in higher education environments. 5,700 Greek manuscripts for the New Testament compared to 1,757 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. So just think of that, something that I know I've, I've heard of, tried to read, Homer's Iliad that we hold to, well, there's only 1,757 manuscripts as compared to the 5,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. How many of you ever heard of or read Beowulf? I have. Remember in college. Do you know how many original manuscripts there are for Beowulf? One. That's it. And yet it'll make its way into a lecture and be told we're going to read this to understand culture and society and, and what took place with the gods. And there's one original manuscript. We don't even know if what we're reading is real. So let me show you this graphic to show you. There's 5,700 Greek manuscripts, but there's more than 27,000 manuscripts in different languages that show us the New Testament that was written between 50 and 100 AD and the earliest manuscript is found in 130 AD, not even 100 years after the events took place. So those red dots filling up that second page and half the first page represent original manuscripts of the New Testament by comparison, original manuscripts of Homer's Iliad or Plato. I just think that you and I should recognize the Bible that we hold can be trusted. It's been dated. It's been, it's been shown as being accurate to what the eyewitnesses wrote about. Now, I also want to bring up this question. What about the other books? Say the other books. What about the other books? Maybe you come from a religious background where there was what's called the Apocrypha, books between the Old and the New Testament. Or maybe you've heard of different, we, we call them gospels that have surfaced, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Mary. What do I do with those other books that I hear about? And I just want to point out some things along the way. So the 66 books that are found in your Old Testament and New Testament are what's called canon. Write that word down, C-A-N-O-N. Not two N's. You'll be thinking about pirates. That's a different kind of canon. Canon simply means completed work. It's completed work. This is the canon. There, there's no more. Well, how can we say that? What if we find some more scrolls? What if we find some more works? What, why didn't those books get chosen? Why do we say these 66 and no more? Here's why. In four, since 475 B.C., the Jewish people have recognized what we call the Old Testament as the canon of Jewish writing. And they had reason to choose more. There were more. But they recognized those 39 pieces of writing as the canon that makes up the Jewish faith, the Old Testament. For the New Testament, there was certain criteria that was used to make the canon that we call the New Testament. One of the criteria was the piece of writing had to be written by or authorized by an apostle. And that's a capital A apostle. And what I mean by that is an apostle was one who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. So you either needed to see Jesus resurrected or sign off on this person's writing as an apostle. Otherwise, it's not canon. It's not making it in here. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor Keith, this is really boring, and I came to church to be encouraged, not watch a History Channel program. Don't worry. In a couple minutes, we're going to watch a cartoon video, and I'll get you all back, okay? Just stay with me for a little bit more. Because I need you to understand. I know this isn't everybody's cup of tea, but again, if you're going to base your life on Jesus, you should understand the book that you're reading. You should be able to have somewhat of an intelligent conversation when someone says, oh, no, that's been changed. That's not real. What are you talking about? Do you know about original manuscripts? So when they recognized New Testament writing, it had to be written by an apostle. They needed a consensus by the church council, and it had to fit the content of what was being circulated. So take a look at this slide. This will show you the canon of the New Testament. Across the top, there is a 27 books. And watch, on the bottom, the Acts of John, Acts of Andrew, the Gospel of Nathaniel, the Gospel of Thomas, those writings were around in that time period, and yet they weren't recognized as canon. They, they could have, and here's what I want you to understand. Oh, so they just chose the ones they wanted. No, it's not about choosing. It's about recognition, and there's a difference. They didn't put all the scrolls out on the table, say, I like that one, I like that one, I want this one. There was criteria. There was a recognition. And the canon was formed in 367 AD, the New Testament. So what happens with the Apocrypha and these other books that still exist? Interestingly, especially for the Apocrypha, I think we should understand this. The Apocrypha was written between 475 BC and 30 AD. Now, who knows who walked the earth from 4 BC to 30 AD? Any guesses? Go ahead, just take a guess. Yeah, if you're in church and you don't know the answer, just say Jesus 95% of the time. You're right. Just, what are you going to do? I'm not going to argue with you. You said Jesus. You would be right. Jesus. Why does that matter? Jesus walked the earth at a time when the Apocrypha was already written. Did Jesus ever quote the Apocrypha? Not once. In fact, he quoted the Old Testament more than 300 times, and that's preserved for us in the New Testament, and he never quoted the Apocrypha, and they, it existed. Jewish people never accepted the books as canon. Now, here's what they are, because I'm not just throwing shade. They are books to the church, but they are not equal with inspired scripture, okay? So they're, they're books to the church. We might learn about what was taking place in history during that time. We know when they were dated. Good, read some ancient literature, do it. Find out some things about the culture, the Maccabees, all of good but do not confuse it with inspired scripture. It has never been canon. And here's the good news for you and I. How many get frustrated when your iOS has an update? I know I do. I'm so sorry. I'm accidentally sending voice memos to people all the time now. I don't even know how it's happening. I don't know how to use my phone any longer because it got an update, got a second version. Okay, here's what I want you to know about your Bible. There's no update coming. You need to know that. Um, the YouVersion Bible app may have an update, but that's software, not new books. <laughs> there, there will not be a discovery. Like you've got, you've got 39 old and 27 new, and hey, that's plenty for a lifetime. It's been canon since 400 BC and canon since 300 AD. So you and I don't have to worry about, well, what if there's something new? What if there's something I miss? What if God wants to reveal more? He's already revealed it. It's in the canon of scripture. Now we got to learn how to study it. How do we study the Bible? So three questions. What is the Bible? We've covered that. I promise the next two will be a little shorter. 
What's the Bible all about? And to answer that question, we're going to watch a video that shows us the single story that the Bible is telling from the very beginning, the first book, Genesis, till the 66th book, Revelation. Take a look at the screen. The Bible is an important book, but it's really long. Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but altogether they tell one unified story. So, what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity. Or in Hebrew, Adam. And they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge, and as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately, a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. And that's confusing. 
but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself. So now humanity's presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human, or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return. The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day, when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. So that's what the Bible's all about. One story, and here's a good way to understand it, the purpose of the Bible is to show mankind who God is and his plan to save mankind from their sin through his son, Jesus Christ. So think if like later today or tomorrow, you open up the Bible and you're reading and you're going in right away saying, whatever I read is gonna show me who God is and his plan to save me of my sin and make me new. That starts to change things. It's how we're gonna learn to approach God's word. Now, what I want to do is I want to end by really creating in you motivation to read scripture. What difference does it make? Because God's word will make a difference in your life. To do that, I want to read the words of David, who was a shepherd and then became a king and wrote Psalms. We'll talk about that. It's a certain genre. It's songs and poetry wrote these songs and writings to praise God for who he was, to declare dependence on him. There are songs for when we're feeling sad, for when we're joyful, for when we're confused. He just wrote. And I want to read some of his words because in it, we find six blessings of scripture, six things that God's word will make a difference in your life. And remember, when David writes, he doesn't even have the New Testament yet. He doesn't have the risen savior yet. He's got the law. He's got the commandments. And yet he writes, here's what God's word does. So Psalms 19, verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God's word is going to make you alive. There are days where I'm just, I'm feeling down. My soul needs reviving. Hey, God's word is a good place to go. I want to read. How about this? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, I knew reading that verse in this room at the 11 o'clock, we didn't have to because there ain't no simple people here. We're all wise already, aren't we? Probably not. God's word is going to make us wise. God's word promises to give us wisdom for our lives. Students, to give you the wisdom you need as you live for Jesus. 
God's word does that. How about this? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Sometimes I just need some joy in my heart. So I'm gonna read God's word. I'm gonna open that. I'm gonna read about what Jesus has done. I'm gonna read about God's great love for the people of Israel now shown to me because Christ has come. I'm gonna get some joy in my life by reading his word. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Many of us were walking around with blinders on our eyes, not knowing what to do, not knowing the plan God has for us. And God says, hey, my commands wanna give you those eyes. My command wants to help you see. My commands will light your path. How horrible of parents would we be if we just let our kids choose and do whatever they wanted without commands or boundaries? God says, I've got to give you the best way to live so you can see clearly. He says this, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. You want to learn to fear God, you got to know who he is. And that fear is an awe, it's a reverence, it's a respect. It's saying your ways are better than mine. I submit to you. You get to know God through his word and it leads to purity. So you've got thoughts, you've got patterns, you've got actions, you've got even identities that you say, I can never imagine my life without this. God says, I wanna make you pure. Learn to fear me. And then last, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do you know what that means? God's word is gonna make us godly. His rules are so good for us. They're gonna create a godliness in us. So let me give you all six. It'll be on the screen. God's word makes you alive, makes you wise, makes you joyful, helps you see clearly, makes you pure, and makes you godly. And I look at that and I say, who wouldn't want that in their lives? Who wouldn't want those blessings, those benefits? Well, everybody wants that. So you know what you gotta do? You gotta learn how to study God's word. And that's what we're gonna do. I wanna end now with a declaration made by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the, New, the Old Testament. Moses, who all he's got, he's just been given like the 10 commandments and all the commands God has given the Jewish people. And Moses makes this declaration that is for us today. Watch this, there's a beautiful promise. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There's some truths in this declaration that Moses makes that I want us to understand this morning. The first is this, he is God and you are not. He is infinite and we're finite. We're limited in our thinking we're limited in our faculties to understand, to comprehend, to hold things. We're finite. There are secret things that belong to the Lord our God alone. And do you know what that makes him? God. He's got a way about him that you and I, we don't understand all of it. That's just a fact. Another fact is that he's chosen to reveal things to us so that we might do all the words of this law. And here's what I want you to understand. This isn't about seeking some special revelation, some secret knowledge, so you can get some followers on Instagram and be an influencer. It's not this verse. Oh, I just got this brand new teaching. No, no, no. There ain't nothing new under the sun. Scripture says that. 
This is about God saying, I've already revealed to you everything you need to know so that you can do what I'm calling you to do. God's told us how to live our lives. We'll discover next week, the problem is if we could pick and choose the Bible passages that we most like and the ones we don't want, we would do it. I don't like that one about forgiveness. I don't like that one about financial giving. I don't like that one about serve. I don't want to surrender my sexuality. I don't want to marriage. God's revealed it all to us. And I thought as I read that, what a tragedy that God has been faithful to reveal it, but his people haven't been faithful to understand it. And I want you to know how to study the Bible this year. Don't go chasing no secret thing. I want you to know, okay, what's been revealed, God's word through Jesus, I wanna know more of that. I wanna understand that. If I can understand more of him in 2024 than I did in 2023, it's a good year. In fact, you wanna measure success for the next 21 days of prayer and fasting. There's one measurement. Are you closer to God at the end of it than you were today? It's the only way. I wanna be closer. I wanna know him more. And he's already given us who we need. Look what John writes. Last verse, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The living word of, like God's own word took on flesh and lived with us, dwelt with us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is good news today, guys. We've seen the glory of God. We've seen the truth of God. Because Jesus is the word made flesh walking among us so that you and I don't have to wander or wonder any longer. We can know who God is. We can know the plans he has for us. So how do you get to know God? Read his word. We believe every person's created to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose and make a difference. And you wanna get to know God more. Read his word. And you're saying, but Pastor Keith, I don't know how. Come back next week. Today, leave here saying, man, I, I'm gonna get a Bible. Before next Sunday, I'm getting a Bible. Hey, blazechurch.org slash Bible. We've got Bibles we recommend. Study Bibles, different translations. Maybe today you just wanna take a Bible off the table when you go back, we'll have someone there give you a Bible. I want you to want to read it and then come back to discover how. Because he's got so much for you. How beautiful that he's given us his word been preserved for us for all these years. So I want to pray right now that you would have a desire for his word. Would you bow your head, close your eyes as I pray. God, I pray for every person in this space, for those online, I pray that we would desire you above all things, that there would be a, a renewed longing for the word of God in us, that we would not be content with what we do now with your word, but that we would say, I want more. I want to read more. I want to understand more. I want to apply more of the way of Jesus to my life. There is nothing else that matters except you, God. And so thank you for faithfully giving us your word. May we not leave that gift unopened. May we read, use, and apply the word of God to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.